The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. Well, if you want to follow along in the Pew Bible, I'm actually going to pick up the last couple of verses of John 19, which aren't in your bulletin or in the slides, but I think it fits well with the song as well. So Jesus has been crucified on a cross. And we'll pick up the story in John chapter 19, beginning at verse 33, 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound in it linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. But because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. And so now we enter into chapter 20. Jesus has been crucified. He's been buried. 75 pounds of of myrrh and aloes has been uh, placed upon him. They have sealed the tomb. And now we get to chapter 20. And what you're going to see is an empty tomb In the first 10 verses, everything's related to the tomb. And then not only do we have an empty tomb, but then we have three resurrection appearances. And chapter ends with the climax of the book, that you would have life. How can you have life if we just ended in death at the end of chapter 19? Well, let's hear the story afresh. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not not know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. And Simon Peter came following, following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around, saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, 
Tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of the first day, that first, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad. I think that's a pretty lame translation. They rejoiced. They rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails, place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have seen, who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Here ends the reading of God's word. Steve Zinni, can you get me a, a glass of water? My Russ is not here, to, to, or he's here, but he's recovering from his knee, and I'm, my, I can tell him that I need some water. Let me pray for us. Father, now as we consider this incredible, the incredible truths, I pray that, Lord, you would uh, help me to expound them that would bring uh, encouragement, faith, and hope and love from the saints, and I pray that you would draw people to yourself, that you would remove a hardness of heart and unbelief and blindness that we all naturally have, and ask for your kingdom to break into our lives. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much. Okay, well, John is taking us on a journey here in chapter 20 here, and I mainly want to focus on two, we'll look briefly at the empty tomb, but I want to kind of draw into Mary and then into, into Thomas, these two uh, appearances in particular of the three. But first of all, as you look at the, the first uh, 11 verses, everything is about the tomb, Okay, and that's important because there's this big thing today that, that people will look at this account and say that what is happening here is cognitive dissonance. And that, you know, it's a sociological or psychological term, and that when someone has 
cognitive dissonance, dissonance, their behavior is clearly not lining up with their beliefs. So it's kind of like, you know, you've been told that you have lung cancer, but you continue to process this news by smoking more cigarettes. You're not living in alignment with what you have just heard. And the idea of co uh, cognitive dissonance is that, you know, someone has died and you are processing that incorrectly and you're still leaving a plate out and you're still processing as if they'll be home soon. And you're acting and hoping and living in such a way that they're going to arrive any minute. That would be cognitive dissonance. You're not living in alignment with reality. And so it is said about uh, Mary and the disciples that they are experiencing cognitive dissonance, that they are not living in alignment because they are so hoping that he, uh, or, you know, they're, they're, they don't think that he's died. They're not living with that reality. And what I want you to see is it's just the opposite is true. Nothing could be further from the truth. They are so convinced that he is dead that when the, the, the obvious is right in front of them, they don't see it because they are not experienced. They are certain that he has died. And so just look at the first 11 verses. I mean, it begins with Mary sees that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. She's going to the tomb and there's a lot of running, right? So she runs, she gets Peter and John, and she says to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, verse 2. Verse 3, Peter and John are going toward the tomb. John outruns Peter and reaches the tomb first. John looks in the tomb and sees the linen cloths there, but he doesn't go into the tomb. Peter gets there. He proceeds into the tomb. I mean, everything's about the tomb. Verse 8, John, who had reached the tomb first, says he also went in to the tomb. And he saw and believed. And John's giving us a big hint as to what's coming in the rest of the chapter when he tells us, for his yet they did not understand the scripture that he must, there's that big word, that, that day word, this it is necessary, that he must rise from the dead. And so he's telling us what's going to happen. The disciples went back to their homes, and there's Mary. She stood weeping outside the tomb, and then it says she stooped to look into the tomb. Okay, so there is, tomb is in it. I mean, a tomb is, is, is significant with gloom, okay? They were, they were coming to give last regards. They're fully expecting him to be dead, dead, as, as they've last seen him. And so um, what we're seeing here is not any sense of cognitive dissonance. And I think sometimes we think, well, we know a lot better than they did of what, you know, what a dead person look like, looks like. And, you know, we're, we all kind of naturally have this, what C.S. Lewis calls kind of the chronological snobbery, is that somehow we think, you know, well, we know so much better than they did. You know, we know that, you know, a virgin can't have a child. You know, we know that, that people don't walk on water. You know, we know these kind of things, but they were primitive in their thinking, and they didn't quite get that. And and the reality is if that is true, then what are people going to say about us in 100 years from now? They're going to laugh at everything that we've said. So the chronological snobbery is, no, no, they, they, they understood. 
And so what we see is that Mary, and this is Mary Magdalene, who had seven demons driven out of her, and she is doggedly loyal. She wants to find the body of Jesus. She loves Jesus. She loves the miracle worker. She's willing to carry him away herself, even if there's 75 pounds of, of spices on him, you know, whether he's 250 pounds, she doesn't care. You just tell me where you put him and I'll take him and I'll put him back where he belongs. Doesn't matter if he's lifeless and heavy. She just wants to put him back, wants her life to get back to some semblance of normal. Her expectation was that he was in the tomb. He needs to be back in the tomb. And it's never dawned on her that Jesus could actually be alive again and not in the tomb. So in verse 14, when she actually turns around and sees Jesus, this is one of these great, you know, reunion uh, experiences where, you know, we love watching these things on, online, you know, on Instagram or something where so-and-so's come back from, the, from Iraq, you know, and, and they're going to take a family picture at the birthday, and then, you know, the, the husband just jumps into the picture, you know, and she's, you know, smiling with her family, and then they say, hey, take a look at the picture, you know, she's you know, and all of a sudden, she, you know, you're here, you know, and, you know, we love that kind of thing. I love just seeing a dog, you know, a dog hasn't seen, you know, his master for a year, and all of a sudden, you know, he comes back from the war, he's hiding, you know, the dog sniff, sniffs, and the dog just goes absolutely ballistic, you know. We love these kind of stories. Well, this is the best one. Mary turns right around to Jesus, and she's looking right at him, and what, what happens? Verse 14. You know, Jesus is speaking to her and, and says, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing to be the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. You see, she is suspicious of everybody. She is solving a crime. And you must have had a hand in this, you gardener. And if you've done it, just tell me where you put him, and we'll put an end to this. You see? She's completely consistent with her belief that Jesus is dead. There's no cognitive dissonance going on. And then Jesus says one word to her, Mary. And when he says her name, everything about, everything changed for her. The penny dropped. Her worldview changed. Her life changed. Her reality changed. Her affections changed. Her confusion changed, her frustration, her anxiety, her distress, her disappointment, her faith, her hope, and her love, everything has completely changed. She got it. And she grabs hold of Jesus like Jacob grabbed hold of the angel. It was Jesus in the Old Testament when he showed up. And I won't let you go until you bless me. She is clinging to Jesus with all of her might. And Jesus has to give her a commission to say, not yet. He's saying, you know, I, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and to your God. Go, go to my brothers and tell them this message. And so at this point in time, the church is basically down to Mary. She's the, she isn't the first to believe, that would have been John, but she's the first to see there is in Christ. And she's the first one sent out proclaiming this good news. And she's got news for the disciples. 
Her news is verse 18. I have seen the Lord. And it's the same message that the disciples now have in verse 25 for Thomas. We have seen the Lord. And so Jesus shows up in these accounts, and what does he keep saying? He shows up in verse 19, and he says to the disciples, peace be with you. He said to them again in verse 21, peace be with you. And then he shows up eight days later, this time with Thomas there in verse 26. And what does he say this time? Peace be with you. And guess how the service is going to end today? Peace be with you. The risen Christ, because he has appeared and has died for our sins, been raised for our justification, the scriptures say, whenever Paul begins any epistle except for Galatians, he says, grace to you and peace. Sins forgiven, grace, and now peace. Peace be to you. He's not just saying just a, a regular greeting of shalom. It's now, this is realized. There is an objective peace with God because Jesus died on the cross. You see, it's one thing that Jesus rose, but if John 19 hadn't happened, I mean, it's kind of like, for all of us, it's kind of like, do we really want to see him? There's hell to pay. It's kind of like, you know, when the, the miner situation where the one guy, you know, they're all in the mine for, for days down there in Colombia or, where, or uh, Chile, and they're down in this mine, and the one guy has a wife, but he also has a girlfriend, and he's living with the girlfriend, but now they're both up there above, and they're waiting for him. What do you think the guy in the, in down here is doing? Uh, you first. You first. He's letting everybody in the whole thing be taken because he knows when he gets to the top, he's got to answer to two women. Oh boy, he's in big trouble. So he's just gladly, no, no, you first, you first. And that would be like it for us. We wouldn't want to see him because we all know there's shame, there's sin, we're in trouble. It's kind of like, I mean, I can remember as a kid, you know, one time I... I mean, my mom will remember this story. She's here. I mean, I had signed my parents' name on, on a uh, deficient. You know, everybody was in trouble. We all got sent home a note. Get your parents to sign it. Bring it back to class. So I bring my note back, and I signed it myself. Now, my problem was I was in the third grade. I didn't know cursive, and I wrote in all capital letters, Mrs. Bale. Now, when she was going through the, 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 these things, and she gets to mine, and she says, uh, you signed this yourself. And I said, I did not. And she said, yes, you did, and I'm going to call your mother. And so I said, well, you go ahead. <laughs> I was crazy. Well, because as soon as she walked out of the class, I started bawling. I started crying. So when we get off the bus that day, Right there in Gaithersburg, right off Long Draft Road, there's a, what we called the Suicide Hill. It was the longest walk ever to my house. Because as I just went home, I knew when I got to the door, I was in big trouble. And even my mom told me, I still remember this today, even my friends at work couldn't believe that you would do such a thing. You know, that was what you told me. And I just felt horrible. You know, I, was in, I got big spankings for that. Well, 
That's what it would be like for us if there wasn't a 19. If there wasn't a John 19 of it is finished, paid in full, we wouldn't want to see him. But because John 19 is true, now we can see him. And he loves us because of what he's done for us. He died on a cross to pay for our sin so that we could come into his presence. And so Peter, I'm sorry, Thomas, he, he is wrestling with this because he's been hurt. And that's probably where some of you are this morning. You've been hurt maybe by the church, maybe by Christians, maybe just by life. But he's, his language is the language of pain. When he says in verse 25, he says, unless I see in his hand the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. When you hear the language of I will never, it's the language of pain, is it not? The person who's gone through a hurt, a hurt and a pain, they've been divorced, they will often say what? I will never marry again. I will never trust again. I will never be in that industry again. I will never work near that place. I'll never be near that person. I will never do that again. You see, for, for Thomas, his hopes were crushed. His faith was dashed. He'd been with Jesus for three years. He'd seen miracles, demons cast out, and lepers healed, and blind receiving their sight, and lame men walking, and dead people brought back to life, and thousands fed from a few loaves and fishes. He had seen it all, and he loved Jesus, and he was even willing to go and die with him. Matter of fact, he was kind of a calf a cup half empty kind of guy. I mean, he figured it was going to happen in John 11 when Lazarus was, you know, died and Jesus says, we're going to go to, you know, we're going to go and have him raised. And Thomas knows this is going to be right near Jerusalem. And he'd seen the animosity growing, the plot thickening. He knew that if Jesus went near Jerusalem, the religious leaders out of their envy and greed were going to get rid of him. And so he says to the other disciples, what? Let's go and die with him. This is it. It's over. <laughs> Let's just go and die with him. And so he'd seen Jesus treated with such indignity. He had seen it. He had seen the mistreatment, the cruelty, the hatred, the torture, the awful abuse. He'd heard Jesus' cries from the cross. He'd seen Jesus on the cross. He'd seen the crowd mocking him. He'd seen the soldiers teasing him and punching him and beating him. And he'd seen the, the spear thrust into his side. He'd seen the blood and water gushing out. He'd seen him taken down from the cross. He'd seen all of that, and it was just too much pain now to fathom. It was a wrap for Thomas, okay? It's over. I'm done. He's in shutdown mode. I will never believe. I've seen it. And he doesn't like that the disciples are saying, we've seen the Lord. He doesn't like it because he's like, will you guys just quit with that? He can't handle meeting with you guys. That probably wasn't, wasn't there. He's seen all this, and he's thinking, I don't want to be with people because every time I'm with you guys, we're always with Jesus, and Jesus is no longer here, so I don't want to be with you guys. And that probably wasn't, wasn't why he played hooky the first time they met, and he wasn't there. You can imagine Thomas is saying, I can't trust anybody, and if I could trust anybody, it's Jesus, and he's now gone. And you guys are telling me you, you saw something. And they're saying, well, why don't you just come? We know you're hurting. We won't make a big deal about this. Why don't you come next time we meet? 
And you can imagine Thomas probably saying, I'll come just so you guys will shut up about we've seen the Lord stuff. <laughs> I'll come, all right. I just want to quiet you guys down. And we'll see, we'll, you know, enough of this he's alive stuff. And so he comes. And Jesus comes. And Jesus comes and says, peace be with you. A bruised reed he will not break. He comes straight over to Thomas and shows Thomas his wounds. And we see that Jesus' omniscience, nobody whispered in Jesus' ear and told him, hey, Thomas has said these things, you know, that I'll never and I'll never. I mean, Jesus knows, just like he knew Nathaniel. I saw you under the fig tree. He knows. He knows all about you. He knows your doubts. He knows the things that you have said. He knows the things that you have thought. He knows the things. He knows where you've been. And yet he still loves you. And so he says to Thomas, put your, hand, put your finger here, put your hand here, my side. And every demand of Thomas is now a command of Jesus. And the weight of evidence is just overwhelming to Thomas. He doesn't have to respond and do these things. We're not told that he actually, you know, stuck his hand in there. He says, my Lord and my God. He gets it. You see, poor Thomas has gotten this bad rap. I want you to know today, his first name is not Doubting. Okay? There is a D associated with his name. It's called Didymus, not Doubting. Okay? But he gets the name of Doubting Thomas, and you start to think his first name is Doubting. But he makes the best confession of all of the disciples. And you see, he sees Jesus, and in that moment, just like Mary, his whole life changed. All of his hurt, all of his pain, all of his fears, all of his doubts, all of his hopelessness, it's all vanished, and he's lost in wonder, love, and praise. That which was too good to be true was true. Naturalism didn't win. Supernaturalism prevailed. Jesus has swallowed up death, and he brings hope and life to Thomas and to us today who believe. And so maybe this is where you are this morning. Maybe you've been sitting on the sidelines. You've been a pessimist. Too hurt to believe, too hurt to try. You've been wounded. And Jesus comes, just like he does to Thomas, and he's here, and he says our name. And Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. And Mary recognized, and Thomas knew who he was looking at. And Thomas isn't saying here, oh my God, like a, like a cuss word, like a surprise, no, no. When he says, my Lord and my God, he's not taking the Lord's name in vain. He's worshiping the King of glory. He totally gets it. You see, Thomas's confession, what's so amazing about it, is Jesus's response. Jesus's response isn't to try to correct him. He doesn't try to improve on it or, you know, you're almost there or no, that's incorrect. Jesus said, to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. But he's commending the response. And A.W. Pink says this about his confession. He says, when Cornelius fell down at the feet of Peter and would have worshipped him, the apostle refused such honors as once and says, stand up, I myself am a man. And when the people of Lystra in the book of Acts would have done sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas, they ripped their clothes and they ran in among the, the people saying, Sir, why do you do these things? We are men of like passions with you. 
And when John fell down to worship in Revelation at the feet of an angel, the angel said, see that you don't do that. But when Thomas says to Jesus, my Lord and my God, the words do not elicit a syllable of reproof from our holy and loving master Jesus. You see, and what J.C. Ryle says about this is what you see in these words of, of Thomas is the language of amazement, delight, repentance, faith, and adoration all combined in one sentence. You see, you have it all. You have like all the fruits of the Spirit in one little statement. I mean, is that not repentance? My Lord and my God? Is that not faith? Is that not love? Is that not worship? Is that not surrender? Is that not humility? Is that not a heart changed by Jesus? And you're seeing what a change of heart looks like And so I would say to us this morning, have we ever made a confession like that? Have you ever said to Jesus, my Lord and my God, my Lord who I must serve, my God who I must worship? You see, the lights all came on for for Thomas. He, He remembered that he who has seen me has seen the Father, says Jesus in John 14. That to honor the Father, you must honor me, Jesus says in John 5. And now Thomas is saying, my Lord and my God, and he's, it's the climax of the whole book of John, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And Jesus and, and, and the Father are both God, and they're together at creation. Well, here he's seeing that Jesus is clearly his God, and yet Jesus is saying that he's ascending to his God. So there's still a God the Father and God the Son, and they're, they're both God. G. Campbell Morgan has a sermon. He was a preacher in London uh, over 100 years ago, but he has a sermon just entitled, Was Thomas Mistaken? Was he mistaken? He says, that's a serious question. Upon our answer, upon it must depend on intellectual, emotional, and volitional attitude toward Christ himself. If Thomas was mistaken, then our attitude toward Christ cannot be that of Thomas. But if Thomas was right... Our attitude must be the same as his great confession. So if you may have read the bulletin or the announcements that I sent out this week from Christopher Watkins' book, The Biblical Critical Theory, he's got this great chapter on the resurrection. And one of the helpful nuggets that you come across in there is he makes it clear that the resurrection of Christ is not a resuscitation. He says, Jesus did not come back to life. He went forward to a new life. His resurrection is not a return to the same existence that he had before he was crucified, like the resuscitation of Lazarus or Jairus' daughter, whom Jesus brought back to life, but they later died a normal death. The resurrection introduces something radically new into the fabric of the universe, and to our understanding of the possibilities and limits of our world, transforming the Christian way of inhabiting reality. It's as significant as the creation of the universe, for it parallels the first creation with what Paul now calls new creation. We are new creatures in Christ. This is what Paul means when he calls the resurrected Christ the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. I mean, what was the idea of first fruits? you would pull out the first fruits of the crop and you would know, James knows this, but when you pull out the first fruits, you kind of, you know what you're going to get. 
you know whether it's going to be a good harvest or not a very good harvest. When you pull out the first fruits and you start looking at that first crap, of, the first stalk of corn that you pull, you, you're going to know whether it's going to be a good one or a bad one, good season or not a good one. And Jesus is the first fruits, the first of the crop to be gathered in at the beginning of the harvest season that was a practice initiated by God through Moses that the people were to do when they entered the promised land. Christ now, as the first to be gathered into the new creation, is seen by the biblical writers as the fulfillment of this Old Testament custom and the one in whom its complete fulfillment will be realized. The resurrection of Christ is not simply proof that there's life beyond death, nor is it simply proof that the cross was affected, effective and that all those who trust in Christ have their sins forgiven. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the first glimpse of the shafts of breaking dawn that will one day flood the sky with brilliant light in the new heavens and new earth. And I just got to tell you, I was working on this this morning. I get up early on Sundays. And where I'm sitting in my chair, I was working on this quote. And when I got to this quote, the sun went beep, and it shot a ray of light right into my face. Hallelujah. It was awesome. You see, we have, new life has begun. The, the first new heavens and new earth, it, the new creation, the first fruits, he's already been raised. And this is where C.S. Lewis has the imagery of, of the crocus. And I'm just starting to learn about all the flowers that I never looked at before, like these flowers here. And I didn't even know there's a whole order to flowers. Like, what comes up first? I didn't know. I'm 53 years old. I'm just now learning. There's an order to this. The roses are going to come later. But first comes the crocuses, right? And then comes what? The daffodils and the tulips. And there's a whole order to this. I was learning this in staff meeting. I've been Googling this. I'm like, wow, there's, I never, oh, it's pretty amazing. I, for years, I never even noticed this thing. But there's beauty all around us. This is what Lewis says about the crocus. He says this, to be sure, it feels wintry enough still. Many of you feel the winter of the hardness of life. But he says, but often in the early spring, it feels like that. 2,000 years or only a day or two by this scale, a man really ought to say the resurrection happened 2,000 years ago in the same spirit in which he says, I saw a crocus yesterday. Because we know what is coming behind the crocus. The spring comes slowly down this way, but the great thing is that the corner has turned. There is, of course, this difference that in the natural spring, the crocus cannot choose whether it will respond or not. We can. We have the power either of withstanding the spring or sinking back into the cosmic winter or of going into those high midsummer pomps into which our, our leader, the Son of Man, already dwells and to which he's calling us. It remains with us to follow or not, to die in this winter or to go on to the, into that spring and into that summer. And so how does the book end? The book of John ends with these two henna clauses, those two so that statements of why this book was written. They were written so that you would believe. He assumes that you won't believe. He will assume that you're starting from the position of doubt. He assumes that everybody who started this story, they had to be convinced. John had to be convinced. Mary had to be convinced. Thomas had to be convinced because it's not normal to see somebody rise from the dead. He assumes that, but he's written this so that, in order that, 
you would believe. And when you do that, something special is going to happen. You'll have what? Life in his name. Life. And the whole book of John has been telling you about everlasting life and abundant life. And that Jesus is the eternal life. And you get all three in him. You get life. Do you have life today that's given you hope, that's given you a purpose to live? By following Jesus, we know the creator of the universe. We know our future. And we too shall be like him. We too shall be raised into his glorious body. Put your trust in him and let him cover your hurt and your pain so that you'll cry out like Thomas did, my Lord and my God. Let's pray together. My Lord and my God, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. We still feel the winter. We still see the effects of sin and the curse. We hear about it. But Lord, may we remember this, that our Lord has conquered the grave. And we thank you that death no longer has mastery over him. And the last enemy to be destroyed, death, will happen. That the rest of your kingdom will continue to break in that heaven and earth will be one, that you will return, you will set up your kingdom here, and that the meek will inherit the earth. And so, Lord, give us faith and strength to press on and to persevere. Fill us with love, and may we not write people off, and to say, I will never, in our hurt, in our pain, but to say, I will ever follow you and love you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.